the SF Music Tech Summit, recorded live by Media One Audiovisual. To learn more about us, visit us online at MediaOneAudio.com. All right, building apps. That's what this show is all about, okay? If you ain't building apps, you ain't building nothing. It's about the music, but it's about connecting the artists with the fans. And these are a bunch of people who all do it. So take it away, guys. <laughs> My name is Lee Martin. Um, you may know me from such apps as G-Link or HotBuns.FooFighters.com. And what I do is experimental development for SoundCloud. What that means is I build apps using our platform and many others all day, every day. I'm completely obsessed with it, so much so that they gave me my own show this year. Today we'll be discussing building apps with a panel of experts much smarter than myself. Topics will range from somewhat geeky to just the nerdiest shit you've ever heard. <laughs> but hopefully, if you came here wanting to know where to start building apps or where the world is headed um, in terms of app development, we'll be able to help you out. So let's get started. Also, um, Q&A the whole time. Feel free to come in. My questions are super generic and very simple. Um, so if you have something that might be controversial, by all means. We had an extra beer, but I think it's gone. I'm sorry. We were going to offer it up for the best question. Anyway, uh, hosting style. I only know game show style, so this might sound like Price is Right. I don't know. All right. So let's get started by meeting some of our fine panelists. Um, <laughs> State your name, a bit about yourself and the company you work for, and your favorite app. And you can't pick yourself, even though mine is SoundCloud. Uh, I'm Bram Cohen. I am the uh, inventor of BitTorrent. Uh, my favorite app is Uber. Hi, I'm Dalton Caldwell. I run app.net. Um, and you may remember me from, I was the founder and CEO of iMeme. Um, we made mobile apps on both Android uh, and iPhone, as well as uh, did a mobile app called PickPlease. My name is Taylor McKnight. Uh, I worked on Hype Machine the last four years, and now I work on Sked.org. And my favorite app is Sleep Cycle. I'm Danielle Morrill. I'm the first employee at Twilio. We have APIs for sending and receiving text messages and phone calls and opening up audio pipes in the browser. And uh, my favorite app is probably Uber. Brad Sterling, founder of Nugsnet. We sell live downloads of every night bands play like Metallica and Fish and Grateful Dead. And uh, built the, the apps we built were uh, the live Fish and live Metallica apps. My favorite app, though, is actually Kayak, which I think is probably the most useful thing out there. So two for Uber. Okay. Um, so let's start with app ideas. For me personally, inspiration comes from desperation. The kind of desperation I feel when a project is dropped on me at the last second or if I throw myself into a competitive programming competition. Where do, you, where do the ideas come from? How do you guys get inspired or inspire others to develop apps? And what sort of maybe some of the tough ideas, the ideas that don't work? Uh, well, I'd say first thing about uh, building an app is don't do it. Uh, uh, people make, there has to be some reason to, to have it as an app. An app can't just be a wrapper for a piece of content. It can't just be something that your website could do just as well. Or you're just wasting development time building this app thing. Uh, and a whole lot of, uh, bands especially fall into this thing where the more artistic license they have over their internet presence, the worse it is. 
awful lot of bands like make an app that's worse than their website, that's worse than their MySpace profile, that's worse than their Facebook page. Because the, the more limiting the platform is, the more it's kind of forcing you to do everything right. And the ideas that people have of extra things to do aren't such a good idea. Their MySpace page has all this like style sheet crud on it where they pissed on it. And then their home page is all flash-based and who knows what they're doing for their mobile app. And uh, you really need to think about what the... If you have something that's really just a bunch of content or some information, that's really appropriately a website. Kind of a rule of thumb of should you build an app is, number one, is there something that is available on the platform that you're doing the app on that you can't do on your website, which there's a number of such examples. Or number two, are you doing something that requires you hire an engineer? If you're doing something that requires you hire an engineer, there might be a pretty good reason for actually making an app. That's why it's called an app. It's an application. It's actual software. But if what you're doing doesn't meet either of those two, you probably shouldn't be building an app. Yeah, I mean, I, I pretty much agree with Ram. Um, I think the great apps... Are, uh, exist as applications that would not make sense as a website and that are specific to the device that you're on, right? So if you could have made this exact thing as a website, um, it wouldn't, it's not going to be a great app. Great apps that are really inspiring to people are like taking into account the camera or maybe the accelerometer. There, there's things about the device that are very specific to mobile applications. And when, so when you see really big breakout applications, they they do something you haven't necessarily uh, seen before. And I think that's what makes things great. And just regurgitating a bunch of RSS feeds and Twitter feeds and, you know, what have you into a mobile application and just throwing it with your name on the top to go into the App Store to SEO off the name of your band, yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that. And I, I don't think consumers or the people who are in the App Stores would be super excited about people to continuing to do that. Um, as far as, like, coming up with ideas for apps... Um, I would say just, you know, it, it's, it's kind of typical, but build something that you want that doesn't exist. Um, uh, and, and, and build it in the, the kind of easiest way possible. A lot of people um, in the past, I would say, five years, like with the, the frequency of open APIs, can build upon other people's work instead of having to, to write a social network from scratch. You can use Facebook stuff. Or instead of having to, you know, create your own... Um, you know, text messaging backend, you can use Twilio. Like, there's a bunch of different options now that get you past the just rebuilding the wheel and, and, and into, like, the new creative zone of, of you actually offering something uh, fun and interesting. Yeah, I think being fresh is, is extremely important. I think the thing is everyone wants to go features first. They're like, oh, I saw this one app and had this feature, and I saw this other app had another feature, and maybe if I smash all those features together, then I'll have the best app ever for my artist or promoting my event. But really you want to draw the inspiration from the experience you want to create. So if you, uh, say you were representing Britney Spears and her fans are women who like to go out to clubs, like maybe you should build an app with an experience that helps them augment that and tie your brand in. So coming up with the experience first and then building the feature set from there instead of the other way around. Yeah, I think it's challenging for a lot of artists, particularly if you're an established artist, you have really limited rights to what you can do with your content and it's a, a, a rare exception that an artist, a major artist can actually do something cool with their music like Metallica for example, I think the reason why Live Metallica was such a successful app is because the band has the rights to release their live show every night and if you have the app you can listen to the show the band just played not while it's happening but immediately after the show you could stream that show for free in the app and that, that show changes every night the next show 
then the next night's free, then the next night's free. And it, it's rare that a band can actually do that. And if you don't have freedom with your content to do something interesting with it, then why make an app in the first place? Like Bram was saying, just put it on your website or do it on Facebook. Cool. I'll just add in, in terms of inspiration for me personally, it's all about these ideas of hackathons like Music Hack Day and Hack Lala. These are really great events if you're just going in with no ideas. You want to look at a bunch of new technologies and a bunch of ideas at once. It's a great place to start. So we've got our idea, but most apps start with the idea of a, it's a simple idea, perhaps a problem you yourself have, but things can become complicated quickly. I know I find myself recoding the same app over and over again until I find the perfect feature set. How do you guys determine the scope for an app like, to make sure it's got enough interesting ideas without avoiding the feature creep? Hmm. Well, uh, so uh, my, my company has an apps platform that's, uh, we haven't quite figured it out yet. We haven't yet <clears throat> made it super compelling. Um, and the thing that really doesn't work is just wrapping a piece of content in the app. So we've got this app platform where inside of our client, you can write an HTML app for that, which has, in addition to all the stuff you can do on a website, it can also uh, keep track of your downloads and show the user where downloads are. So you can create catalog apps, like basically like a website, which not only has download links, but shows you progress on things and keep, can keep track of what it is that you're downloading from it. So and hopefully in the future we'll be able to like control seeding and other neat things like that. Um, uh, so that's a platform, and it seems uh, like a good idea, and we're writing to it ourselves. Some of our internal things are using it. Um, but we really, I can't claim to be a great authority on what really clicks on that platform because it hasn't. I can tell you one thing we are not doing is promoting on it very well. We have like a tremendous reach in terms of users and we're not doing a great job of um, of taking apps that people write and showing them to our users to immediately. So maybe you have the usage. right features right now. You're trying to figure out which features to add to actually target those people if it is a feature. Well, it's this complicated thing uh, because th there's multiple parties here. There's people who might write apps, and there's people who might use apps, and then there's us. And there's, there's... BitTorrent, are you new? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the criteria that Apple uses for what makes a great app, if you're talking about scoping, yeah, scope. is that it's as good as one of the apps that came on your phone. And it's as high quality, and it's as simple, and it's as easy to use. And that's actually the main standard that they would use for deciding whether to feature you or not is, is this as good as like our calendar app or our mail app? And that's very different than the web-based release early, release often kind of thing that I subscribe to and that a lot of people do in terms of like, okay, we'll put it out there, we'll see how people like it, and da 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 And that's how you do scoping is you start minimally. I think from an app perspective, it's more of coming up with the perfect feature set, no more, no less, with the perfect implementation that works perfectly and is exactly as good as something built into the phone. And those are the applications that actually tend to get featured and to you know, succeed in what people's aims are. And I think it's a very different, if not opposite, mentality of, of what I understand about web, web programming sure. in terms of scope. Do we consider web apps and mobile apps two different entities? Well, uh, I, I think for this purpose, I imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, that most people care about having an app that is successful <laughs> and get featured or get a lot of downloads, right? Not just doing it for the sake of doing it. And if that is the case, um, having Apple like what you're doing 
and being featured by a bunch of different review sites and getting that big bump. The way, the way app cycles go is you get a bump, you chart, and you try to stay on the charts as long as you can. I know, you know, um, this is my business. So um, that is very different, right? That's, in a web app, I would argue you start off and it starts off very quietly. You try to seed it over time. And a good a web company that's doing well kind of looks like this. If you look at the traffic graph, whereas an apps company looks like this, and you just try to keep it at the top of the charts as long as you can. And that's, that is totally, di totally different mentality. So, but maybe, but maybe that's not people's goal. I don't know. That's how the game guys think about it. Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. All right, we're good down there. So do you want us to chime in on that one or? If you guys want to, or fight, whatever. Uh, I'm trying to find something to fight about. So I think web apps, uh, I do think you have to think about where users want to do certain things. So if you're doing, talking about mobile, it's like, okay, well, why am I mobile? Why am I on my phone? Do I have a dead 10 minutes between the next thing I'm going to do versus something like Pandora where I'm working for eight hours straight and that app's just playing the entire time? So it seems like the scope needs to match the thing, like going back to experience. What's the minimum amount of stuff that I could build right now that would create an experience someone would stick around for? And that seems really obvious, right? So take... Uh, turntable FM, for example, which I'm obsessed with right now, and if you guys haven't checked out, it's a lot of fun. You can DJ with friends, and um, it's got a magical experience when you adopt it. You can pick up music out of your playlist. You can search for music, and you can play it. That's it. And if you join right now, you're going to see a bunch of other features. But when they first built that app, that's all you could do. There were no avatars. There were no point systems. It was just playing music with your friends, and um, that's really very simple. And it's not a unique idea. But the fact that it just works and that you can do it over and over and over again and tell people, I can explain to you exactly what this application does, that's the most viral part is it's word of mouth. You can actually, it, whereas if it's a bunch of stuff, if it's like, oh, and there's charts and there's avatars, like what the hell is all that crap? Just what does it do fundamentally and get everyone to be bought in on that one core thing that matters about the app before you add all the other stuff, like branding. I mean, it really doesn't matter whether it's a web app or an app in the traditional iTunes app store sense. It's what does it do and what's the scope of the project and what, you know, in the context of the music business, in most cases, you're trying to generate more revenue or awareness or both for an artist. So, you know, if it's more efficient to do that as a web app, do it as a web app. If it's more efficient to code that and prototype it and get it out there and improve by the app store. I mean, frankly, from my perspective, it's a big pain in the ass to do stuff for the app store because you got to go through their approval process, and then you know if you actually want to sell something in your app, now they're not going to let you in the store without taking 30% of those transactions. And for the bands I work with, you know, there's not another 30% to give, you know, because I'm taking a piece, the band's taking a piece, the label's taking a piece. There's, yeah, it just it makes more sense to do it on the web and do it as a web app that displays on a variety of devices and isn't limited to what happens in the app store. Yeah, I'm actually a huge fan of of mobile apps. I, I uh, about six months ago, I uninstalled Twitter and Tumblr and all that stuff as like the native apps, and I only use the um, I don't use Mail app, I don't use the Twitter native app. I use all the mobile web stuff, um, partly just because um, I'm more of an HTML CSS guy. I'm not um, an iPhone developer, so I feel like I can actually build things and push things out there faster. But the amount of things that you can do uh, in the mobile web browser is phenomenal now. Um, Hype Machine works in the mobile web browser, so I mean you can play audio, you can read tweets, you can post stuff, um, and so that's just such, such a faster way to get things out to market and, and uh, to, to update things. Uh, 
So uh, I'm actually part of this dying breed. No one's actually said the word application here. I know it's hard to believe. <laughs> so long. But there are these things called applications that actually run on the native machine, and nobody wants you to run these things. There's all these hoops that the end user has to go through. The, the web, the, there is the Mac App Store. Man. Yeah, the, the web browser manufacturers really, really like don't want users like accidentally falling for this malware because everyone just assumes that no one writes an actual application that isn't malware. And it's really, really hard to get people to install stuff. It's like kind of a huge hurdle to overcome. Uh, and usually, uh, and you really miss out on one of the big things you get via these apps platforms, which is they can bring, um, they can bring users to you. The can canonical example of that, I think, is uh, Facebook in the early days. You had things like Slide and things that were even more obnoxious pre-Slide uh, that were really just virality SEO things with no real uh, meat to them whatsoever until the people who actually controlled the platforms completely clamped down on them, and they're mostly gone now, thankfully. Um, uh, so you have this tremendous problem of how do you get people to install stuff, and the farther you get from someone else's platform, the bigger of an issue that with that is. Now, I personally don't do... Uh, virality uh, directly myself. I just kind of engineer things so that other people do virality for me, and that seems to work pretty well. Uh, <laughs> but it's a, it's a hard thing to do. Cool. All right. So we've got our killer, uncomplicated. Yeah, we have a question here. Oh, bring it on, Ty. <laughs> All right. So, uh, he just, Ty just wants a beer. What's up, Ty? Cool. How's it going, guys? Um, so I'm obviously a fan of apps myself as well. I build both web stuff and App Store apps. It seems like everybody on the panel is a little bit down on apps in terms of uh, their necessity. Yet four out of five of you build apps. What specifically about your apps uh, made them worth building above a web app? Uh, well, my stuff requires you actually break out of the security parameters of the web browser, uh, and so must be installed. And there's just no getting around it. I mean, BitTorrent does that. I've been working on peer-to-peer -peer live streaming for a while, and that obviously has to do that as well. And just this, no getting around it. You're stuck with busting out of the security parameters, so you need to have an application. I mean, I think it depends on what you're trying to do, but if you have a I think people aspire to having a multi-screen experience, and that does not mean literally cloning the same shit across different screens. It means having a different way to interact with either community or content in different screens. I mean, the, the iMeme map um, was at the top of app stores. We were one of the first 100 apps on Android as well, and it was different than the website, and it was a much more passive. Like, there was a bunch of design decisions we made differently in that particular app, and it was frustrating dealing with the things you're talking about, but um, it it was different, it was good, it was well-liked, and I guess was worth doing, you know, it was monetizable, and that's a different conversation as well. Um, you know. Yeah, um, so like I said, the Hide Machine website works in the mobile browser, but it's not the same experience. So I guess we kind of used it as a platform for distribution um, to get Hide Machine kind of out there with more people. A big part of it was just people had been demanding it for like three years. Um, and uh, you know, as, as much credit as I give mobile web, um, it, it is a smoother experience playing songs, um, the radio experience nonstop on a native app. Um, 
So I'm not saying like there should not be any music native apps, um, but I think that there's a lot of stuff you can do with mobile web that people kind of overlook a lot of the time. As the one person who doesn't build apps who's the platform, I think the important thing I've seen is just with bands, uh, there's a lot of feature creep, especially if you're doing something new, and so it seems like if you build it in the mobile web, you can actually just iterate a lot. And so if you're going to get that feedback and the client's demanding, at least there you haven't gone through different approval processes. But then if you get something that's working, then you can obviously make that into, into an app, like if you're using JTouch or something, and then you just change the experience. It's just that way you're not stuck um, really deep in technical debt with a big bunch of changes. Well, for us, it was a revenue opportunity. It was a, a new way for our bands to make money outside of, you know, we have bands who sell downloads of every night they play, and so selling an app was a way to have a lower price point for fans to engage with the band and get something cool they can't get anywhere else, but get it for 99 cents instead of 9.99. So, you know, Metallica sold a shitload of apps because you can, you know, they're an immensely popular band, and all of a sudden you can hear every note they play on your phone. So that's a pretty compelling opportunity for 99 cents. And then the band gets to make money. The, one of the things that you get that's kind of underutilized uh, on mobile apps is someone can enter again their credit card information once, and then they don't have to do it again to make further purchases. And this sounds silly, but one-click like purchasing is a huge, big deal <laughs> in terms of getting people to buy more stuff. I know there's some prestige that comes with apps, too. I've had, um, with Sked, we work with a lot of music festivals and conferences, and we have a mobile app. We actually abandon all of our native apps because most people don't want to necessarily install an app just for one event. And lots and lots of organizers still demand an app, even if it's the exact same functionality, just for the prestige of you know my music festivals in the app store. It just makes it sound like you've actually made it or something. Well, there was a bandwagon thing where like it was kind of a gold rush. Like everyone wanted to have an app. Everyone thought they needed to have an app. Just yeah. to, everyone needed to be in the app store and be on the charts. And yeah. Yeah, kind that, of like the web 10 years ago. Yeah, that kind of thing, especially if you have a music festival. Like the, the output of a music festival is a whole bunch of music files is what are on the website. And you should have a website with a whole bunch of clicks to download music files from it. And that's what it should be. There is an ongoing interactive functionality with it. Question? Right there, purple shirt. I actually have two kind of related questions, but one is I'd love to hear some about the Apple approval process and how hard and arduous it is. And they're trying to get us banned. <laughs> they, they're watching this right now, and they don't like that question. Disapproved. <laughs> and the other one is, um, in considering whether to build an app or not, is there any sources of competitive data of what, how many downloads other apps have had? For example, Music Festival. If you're going to do a Music Festival app, would there be any way to find out how many people have downloaded other music festival apps, just to get a sense for how much potential there is there? Uh, as a data point, my application has over 100 million monthly actives. Um, <laughs> probably not representative of other things. Don't compete with Torrent. <laughs> but Dalton, you're sort of building a platform around the idea of app analytics. Yeah. I mean, so look. The approval process is intentionally very obfuscated, and it actually isn't something they ever can talk about or will talk about publicly. And I'm not, you know, people aren't supposed to talk about talking about it. And there's lots of meetings that you have where it's like this meeting didn't happen, like that. Seriously, you think I'm kidding? Um, Inception. So <laughs> it's usually about two weeks. Um, 
a lot of it is really legit. Like they'll find bugs in your app. I mean, and I just think the important criteria is it's their phone. They wrote the native apps on the phone, and they want to make sure that if you're putting your stuff on their phone, that it's as good and it's up to a certain level of quality because they don't want to put a bunch of crap on their phone. Like, I know this may sound weird, but that really is my best distillation of how Apple thinks about the app approval process. It's just not letting people put crap on a phone that Apple made. Um, but if that's the goal, they still let a lot of things. Oh, yeah, there. look, <laughs> I'm not, not going to be the apologist in any direction on that. But um, sorry, and what was the second part of that? That was uh, the approval process? Uh, analytics. Again, intentionally obfuscated, and there's a lot of rules around third-party analytics not disclosing that type of data. Um, so uh, there's a lot of stuff around cost per install installation tracking that's not supposed to be public. Um, you pretty much just rely on individuals choosing to share that data. And there's also, you know, it's like the YouTube views thing in the music industry of like, well, what is a download? What is it worth? What is an active user worth? So there's all these different metrics that you can play with. But the fact is Apple does not disclose these numbers. Android does. They have the range of like, you know, X thousand uh, downloads. Uh, but there's no, I don't know, heavily obfuscated and probably totally on purpose. All uh, we have is charts. The Apple App Store does strange and mysterious things. And sometimes it promotes stuff and sometimes it doesn't. And things get random amounts of downloads for no apparent reason that anyone can see and you don't know why and you should just get over it and stop worrying about it. Have a beer. And it's the same UI as the music store. If you've ever been the back end of the music store looking at your royalty reports, it's the same. So it's exactly the same. Like they just, that explains a lot. Anyway. Anybody? There's another question or a couple questions. Hi. Um, <clears throat> My name is Michael. I noticed recently where um, Apple required a number of uh, larger players like Kindle and what have you to remove certain segments of their app. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? I sure. mean, uh, I'll take as far as the consumer goes, I mean, so, and I have one so, more part of that. Look, is Apple now also controlling the back end, for example, like um, with um, the Kindle app? It doesn't go directly to Kindle now, and it's my understanding that if you buy something through the uh, Kindle app, but it's on, say, an iPad, that actually uh, Apple controls that uh, purchaser information as opposed to, let's say, Amazon. So this comes down to a terms of use issue, and I encourage everyone to read it that, that builds an app. Um, basically, they have the sole right to do whatever they want with their platform, and specifically, they're trying to make sure that people don't get cute to get around the 30% thing. Um, this is the source of a lot of uh, issues. So you can't use, a, if you're selling virtual goods, you can't use another billing provider, period. And if you do, they, when, during the review process, they look at your app and they see what SDKs you're using, what APIs, and they just don't approve you. That's it. Like, that's the kill switch. Um, why are they doing this is that is explicitly against the terms of use as they state what you can and can't do. And if you read it, you will say, it'll, it's very legalese, you know, they enumerate exactly what you can and can't do. And so getting around their in-app purchase APIs, not okay. For physical goods, you can actually do it. That's how Groupon works. So if you're selling a physical good, you can put your own billing provider through here and they don't take 30% of that. But if we're talking about digital goods, yeah. And so what they've been doing is blocking these guys and they didn't really do it so much in the past. So what if your digital goods are not offered on their site? Um, 
this is one of those more complicated things where different people are trying different things. There was a nice blog post, if, I'm sure you can find it if you Google for it, about all the, the music subscription services. They all kind of took different plans of attack around that and different pricing, and I'm not going to attempt to summarize that blog post. But yeah, they did an HTML5. Yeah. So everyone is, there's a lot of margin pressure, especially for the content business, and so there's not like a best practices way to get around this. And There is no method to the madness that is the Apple App Store. Well, I just read the terms of service and realize what you're signing up for. So. Hold on just one second. Yeah. In large part, it's like it's their platform, it's, it's their, their playground. Phone. You have to play with their games. If you don't want to play their games, you could be like me and have a real application, but <laughs> good luck with that one. Um, I was just going to point out that, I mean, it, it, the 30% may sound large, but it's smaller than what retail cuts have traditionally been in a lot of, sure. lot of businesses. Well, and if, we're, if you're so, selling fun bucks, if you're Zynga or whatever, you know, like 30% of nothing is pretty good, you know. <laughs> right. that, no, but that's, that's what the biggest grossing apps are, is they're selling right. fun bucks. And fun bucks, you can take the 30% haircut if you sell more fun bucks. Right? right, it's not the music business. Well, my my point was that it's it's worth it's worth re remembering that as we're transitioning from physical goods to digital goods and physical goods kind of blurring, that that traditional retail has found ways to sell and and still make money at at these sort of margins. Yeah, well, uh, apps are such a hit or miss kind of a thing. You know, they like so many things traditionally, like movies are a completely hit-driven thing, and software in general is hit-driven. Apps, just the same, is completely hit-driven. And if you're not a hit, it doesn't matter what your monetization is. For most things, it doesn't matter if their monetization was 10 bucks a user. They'd still fail as an invested company. Just they never get the traction that would be necessary uh, for them to be successful at uh, any vaguely realistic amount of monetization. But if you're one of the hits, it's kind of like, who cares? You're making so much money, it doesn't matter. Well, it's also worth looking at, particularly the app store, that the, the most profitable apps, the ones that are ma making the most money, aren't necessarily also the most popular apps. Mm -hmm. So, so it, it's, it's worth remembering that the sort of in-app purchases are driving a lot of revenue for even apps that don't have the millions of users. It just depends on what that app is selling. Yeah, but it's probably, it's, it's a very rare case for that to be a make it or break it about whether you're successful or not. Uh, not, not anymore. Not anymore? No. Okay. All right. I got a question. Okay. Um, I want to talk about building apps. Uh, so, maybe panel. Um, where do you start if, A, you're going to build the app yourself, um, or B, you're going to pay someone to do it? Sort of. Maybe a little bit of a resources question or hiring question, but you want to build your app now. Where do you start? Um, I, I, well, I, I employ a whole bunch of engineers, so my, my approach is, well, I mean, first I'd write it myself. <laughs> uh, not an option for most people, and then I'd hire an engineer after that. But if that was an option for a person, is like, uh, there any particular place where you think they should get started? Uh, like general, going to school, I mean. like general web searching. I mean, <laughs> to me, like my thinking is programming is kind of you start with understanding algorithms. There's like thinking of like a programmer to begin with, and like uh, like one in ten people is dyslexic. Like one in ten people is just going to have a lot of trouble learning how to read. And some much larger f fraction of the general population, probably like one in three, is going to have a whole lot of pro trouble learning how to program. And there have been actual papers written about this. And that they they're going to have a much much harder time learning how to program than the general population is than the ten percent of the population who's dyslexic is 
dyslexic is going to have trying to uh, learn reading. Like just some large number of people should never even try programming. If they, you have, if you try it and just seem to be <laughs> not getting it, you should maybe get the hint and not do it. That's a good starting point. <laughs> um, what happened to not giving up? Uh, you know, I, uh, my thinking is if you want to know if you can make it as a programmer, get a copy of the book in- Introduction to Algorithms and start reading through it and see if you can grok it. I personally find that stuff really interesting. Uh, most people don't. <laughs> so I would say um, an important thing is to just look at your team and say, do you want to be an expert at this? Like, is this something your business is going to do long term? Are you going to start becoming a management company that builds applications for all your clients? Or is this going to be core? If it's not core, I think that it's very, very difficult, like he was saying, for most people to just begin the program. And I don't think that in this business, that's not the high-value piece. The high-value piece is coming up with the deals and the right experiences that people actually want. So my recommendation would certainly be to hire an agency or an individual. But I think the big question is, what if you've never talked to a software developer before? Like, what if you don't, you don't know what they charge? Like, they're saying all this stuff. You don't know what it means. Yeah, is there any particular resources that might point you in the right direction? San Francisco. San Francisco. <laughs> Come to this so like flyer, flyer the city and say, I want an app built and see uh, what happens. You know, you can look for engineers in San Francisco on Craigslist. It's, there's, there's a reason yes, why Craigslist. people continue to hire San Francisco engineers. You can get people a lot cheaper everywhere else, but uh, anyone worth their salt moves to San Francisco if you want to make it as a software person because if you don't, you just don't care enough. It's sort of like trying to be an actor without moving yeah. to L.A. It's like the Hollywood of tech, right? Yeah. Yeah, um, I'm in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> You're like a movie star. <laughs> uh, well, okay. uh, so another resource, if you guys want some resources to like write on a piece of paper, is Odesk or Elance. And some people are going to ooh, evil, but actually, those tools are getting a lot better. So those are marketplaces where you post a spec for a project, and you get a spec developer who's just going to work for you hourly, and they're going to build a prototype. A lot of times that's not necessarily what you would take to your final market, but it gets you part of the way there. It gets you to the point where you're pitching in a conference room with a real demo, which is crucial. So um, I'd recommend those. I actually think Craigslist is great. I actually have this semi-related to that, a note about how you know you've made it when your app is on Elance as like a duplicate. Like, like oh, yeah. it happens once every six months where somebody's like, you know, build me a hype machine clone. A clone. Yeah. Build me a hype machine clone. For $2,000. Oh, yeah. I've seen it as low as $600 in two weeks. $600. Yeah. Dude, take that gig. That's insulting, isn't it? Smash your dough. Copy your um, repository. Have you seen BitTorrent posted Redeploy. on those sites before? Uh, no. Like, no. build my own faster protocol? They don't need People pull a lot of competing protocols. Um, Actually, well, it's weird. So what I do is very, very tech-heavy. And uh, something that's really changed in the Bay Area is it used to be that most of the companies were really technology-focused. And now things have shifted over to where the vast bulk of companies around here are really product-focused. And engineering is secondary to that. And um, my company is one of the few that's really super-heavy uh, tech focused and so that's a lot of why we hire a whole bunch of engineers ourselves because we need people who really really understand this stuff and are really super expert at exactly these very um, uh, particular things uh, and there's been this shift where if you're doing you know a website or something like that the back end technologies you know they basically work and they're standard platform things 
that you can use, and it can be one of the charms of the new generation of companies coming out, is a fair number of them are run by people who aren't actually technologists themselves. They're uh, product people mostly, or some are in sales or marketing, but they're people who have some other focus, which is what the company is really about, and you don't have to be this like hardcore techie to do something like salesforce.com or something, which was never really a technology-focused venture. If it ain't Mongo2B, it's Rongo2B, right? <laughs> <laughs> so one other tool I just want people to write down is TestFlight. Do you guys, I don't know if you know what that is. We're talking about the App Store and being frustrated with TestFlight. So if you're building apps and you want to have users in your, so you have a focus group, 100 people you want to send out to and have them put the app on their phone, that way you can get feedback without going through that whole approvals process. So it's just a great tool people should know about. And I'd suggest like another way to get your app built would be to partner with a company that has sort of a mutual API. Like I know Twilio does it really well, where you continuously throw these monthly programming competitions based upon your API and a third-party company. So that's an easy way, like maybe your company doesn't have an API infrastructure to build apps on your company's um, platform easily, but you could partner with another company throw some sort of competition, give away some free dough, and then you might have like 20 different sort of applications you can choose from. I know Taylor, you were sort of obsessed with the Lollapalooza hackathon that happened that was very similar. Yeah, so, so Lollapalooza um, did this contest called Hack Lala this summer. Um, I didn't have anything to do with it. I was just kind of uh, obsessed and, and watched it from the background as somebody who, who builds festival and conference software. And uh, they open up their API, all of their data, all of their stage data, artist data, bios, um, and and gave away like four free VIP passes to to get this contest going. And they had like 20 entries over 50 days. Um, they had, I would say, 60% of those were mobile apps. Um, you know, when, in the day where like events are spending anywhere from a thousand to ten thousand dollars for an app, they had 15 or 12 of them or whatever uh, built for free. Uh, a lot of them, they still offered an official app, but a lot of them built all kinds of new functionality that never existed before. Um, so, and, and, and it was built all by like passionate fans who, who you know, saw these gaps and wanted to build something for, um, for themselves. So like one of them um, scans your iTunes library and makes show recommendations for the festival based on what you already have on your phone. I mean, like a, a, a duh moment, yeah, yeah. but it had never, I've never seen anything like that for festivals. Yeah, um, I, I couldn't think of a better way to f to find developers absolutely. to build an app better than like throwing yeah. a competition. And I think your there's a product. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of overlap, um, especially with like music enthusiasts and developers. So that's like a good place to start if you're looking. If you're, you know, a, a music company um, partnering with something, uh, you know, that that gets people excited as far as like live shows or or festivals or events or whatever. Um, and offering perks for that, I think it's developers really, really excited to kind of work for free, just fueled by their enthusiasm. I think you also said something really mag like that's magical at the beginning, which is they opened up all their content into yeah. an API. So I think, and I'm not an expert in the music business, but it seems like there's still a lot of debate over who controls content. People don't want to open up APIs. They don't want to make music or other feeds of information available to other people. But developers get very excited about the opportunity to access some set of data that wasn't available before and do something cool with it. And um, so as you're thinking about all this content you have maybe on your website or 
even something like the list of the gigs that are on your tour or other data that you have, that rich data makes a very powerful playground for a developer and it gives them a sense of, okay, you're putting something out there that I actually want, now I'm gonna build for you. They may build things for you for free just because they're so excited to be able to access that data because you might be providing the data for their next startup. So it's a win-win and actually no money has to change hands sometimes. There's a, a listing of APIs called Programmable Web with I think 3,400 APIs listed there. So if you do decide to make your data available and you list your API there, developers go there and they find that and they build cool stuff. Uh, the, the Hype Machine Android app was built by a developer on, on his own, just free will and emailed us, let us know, and it was really cool, so we endorsed it. We didn't have the resources to hire an Android developer, so it was built by the community. Well, that's how we ported our Fish app from iOS to Android, and it actually is debuting today in the Android market because it was some dude who had built this app around the live music archive and he did a really good job so I emailed him and I was like hey you know do you want to do this for fish and he jumped to the chance he was all over it and I mean we paid him and uh, you know it's a great way to crowdsource just look at what people have done and you know run with it yep sweet well we can switch into full Q&A mode if anyone has questions Scott Show. hold on just one second Thanks. Hi. Uh, I was wondering if you could comment on what kind of things led to your decisions to go fully native, uh, let's say with, a, with an app in the store, versus uh, native web. So you had people going to m.whateveryoursite.com on a uh, browser versus that. And then also looking at the hybrid model where you may have an app in the store that then loads dynamic web content. Uh, Who's got that? I kind of answered this one before. It was just... Sorry for the retread. Yeah, Yeah, I know it was a bit... Just security limitations made it so I had to be a native app, which is sort of good and bad. I mean, we now have these very, very large number of native apps installed, which is something that we are working on leveraging better than we are right now. but also creates this tremendous hurdle to actually getting people to install stuff. Uh, but mostly it was a requirement just in terms of getting, you know, out of the security sandbox and getting reasonable performance. And then it helps you, you know, work with multiple web browsers and stuff to be native, but mostly the security. I mean, I, I would just argue that if you do several of them, um, it's good to be able to push traffic around between those. I mean, so what I do is, is app.net. There's no S on it. That's not actually the right URL. Um, yeah. <laughs> It's awesome. Um, but basically, it's the, the, what we're trying to do is make it very easy for app developers to create a web presence and to push traffic from Twitter and Facebook and all these places on the web onto a landing page and through the funnel towards app installation. And so I think the really great, more sophisticated strategies involve, for casual users, you have something on the web that's SEOable that you can get organic tracker for, for that's linkable. Um, and then your more power users you do from the native application. If you talk to a lot of commerce people, the biggest benefit they get from going native is, believe it or not, uh, push notifications. Because if you're doing some kind of commerce or real-time alert, a push notification converts like, you know, probably 10 times better than email if you look at conversions to, um, to actual transaction. So if you have, imagine your funnel of customers, I have a big website, I have a bunch of people, maybe I'm selling something, maybe I'm doing some kind of real-time alert. That's what you get from having that native app on someone's home screen is being able to do those push notifications. And if you're selling or moving a product, it's, it's pretty incredible what you can actually push through that. So long story short, having several things together that all interrelate to a funnel makes a lot of sense, it, in my opinion. It's funny how really some of the most humble stuff is the most effective. By far the most 
effective um, iPhone stuff I've seen, like Uber, which I think is great. Mostly what Uber is doing is just using where you are. That's like the whole thing it's doing is using your location information. And it uses that in a very powerful way to make something that was a huge pain very, very convenient. And that would be useful even for like bands. One thing that a band mobile app should do is it knows where you are so it can send you a push notification. Hey, this band is playing in your area. You want to buy a ticket? Then send you a reminder later. Hey, you want to buy a ticket? And then when the concert's actually coming, can go up, okay, you should go to the concert now and show you a map of like where you are and where it is, that kind of stuff. Uh, and that's really based on just you know GPS, really. Leveraging that. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say just start with the. I, we pretty much beat that question. Yeah, we beat that. All right, let's <laughs> <go>. <laughs> Sorry to ask you, yeah, I work on Flickr as part of my job, and so we've been tr trying to play that balance between native web app, which got us a ton of great people loved it, and it was early on with the App Store stuff. We got that out there. At the same time, it's excellent having GPS, camera, all that stuff, being able to upload directly from the app, do things you can't do natively on the web. But it's, it's always interesting with that balance between the two. So sorry to retread, but I wanted to get a little more yeah. detail uh, from your my, specifics. My advice to Flickr is rip off Instagram. This is my advice to Ooh. Flickr. That's good advice. <laughs> filter, filter the web. <laughs> so I have a question about uh, infrastructure. So, you know, yeah, you build the app. You put it out, out there. Okay, you get a lot of hits. All of a sudden now you have to support it. So what if something goes down? So uh, I don't know if you're hosting your own servers or uh, you're just using services. Um, so I'm just, I wanted to get some information on that. Sort of resources on scaling and making right. sure your website stays up. Any, any experts? I'm not. My and God. There's so a bunch whichever... of startups messing around in that space. I mean, wh which part? There's a lot of components. Right, so I'm just so it's if you're if I guess if you have a web app or maybe like BitTorrent, uh, you probably have some servers that host some data. I'm not sure exactly how it works, but um, yeah. yeah, I think uh, you know we have a server room and we have some redundant machines sitting in it, and uh, we, we do this peer-to-peer -peer thing. It, it works pretty well. <laughs> so the usual infrastructure <laughs> is if you have a web app, you build a JSON RPC, and even if you just even if you just use it internally. You create endpoints for a bunch of the things your mobile app needs, and your mobile app just hits your same web servers, right? Like, that's, that's the default. Right. That's what everybody does by default, if you have both components. Is that? Well, well so what I'm trying to ask is, uh, okay, so you get popular, so you have to make sure your app is always functioning. So if your web server goes down, you know, do you, do you, uh, do you own your own servers? Or if you do, at, one point, at what point uh, did you make a decision to say, okay, yeah, you know what? I actually need to own and maintain my own servers, and I have to have my own engineer to maintain. Um, uh, here, I think the big thing, going back to kind of what I said before about are you going to be an expert in this, is just if you don't want to be an expert at scaling, when you interview uh, engineers or when you're talking to an agency, ask them if that's something they're going to provide you down the road. I think you never have to bring that in-house at this point. There's definitely infrastructure that can support you. I mean, it's going to cost you more... Ultimately, if you don't bring it in-house, I'm sure there's some ROI point where you actually could say that it's got to be in-house. But that's really like pre-optimization. 99.9% .9 of apps are never going to have that problem. It's yep. a great problem to have. Yeah, m most things you can run on top of an existing platform. Uh, lots of places make these ridiculous mistakes about using NoSQL platforms in a bad way. Um, once you actually move to hosting it yourself, you should probably 
be running a SQL database and just not being stupid about how you set up your indices. And once you start scaling up to where that becomes a problem, you should shard it <laughs> like, and not use crazy NoSQL things. I mean, talking to people about what they've been successful with, most of the people who are really succeeding at their scaling are either um, running on top of somebody else's platform that does all the scaling for them or running a sharded SQL database. And it's this very, very rare super scaling thing that involves anything other than that. And if you don't know what sharding is, you probably should hire an engineer. <laughs> I think the hard part's actually the device support, particularly in the Android world. Yeah. At least with iOS, you've got a common platform that you're developing, developing for or a common device, even if it's iPhone versus iPad or different versions of the iPhone. But Android is like the Wild West, and it's a, an enormous pain in the ass to support that, particularly once you have the, the, an app out there in the marketplace. Because you've got all these different devices coming out every day, and then the different OS versions that a certain carrier might have pushed out to their subscribers, and you've got to support that. And it keeps changing. And you know, a classic example is you know, we make music apps, and you know, streaming an MP3 should be a very basic thing. But Motorola devices, don't stream MP3s the same way as other handsets do on, on Android. And it took us six months to figure out what the hell was going on. It turned out it was the image tag. Having the image in the MP3 made it buffer indefinitely on Motorola handsets. And it's just like a classic example. And that's not documented anywhere. You know, it just took months of, of trying to figure out what it is that we're doing wrong. And with, short of us building our own streaming MP3 library, which would be ridiculous because we'd have to support that on a variety of devices. So it, the hard part is keeping up with the technology as you know, new, new products come out every day, and you've got to support that. So you've got to think about that if you're going to put something out there. Yeah, it's funny the layers on things. Like, it's not enough to like write your app in JavaScript these days. Like, nobody actually just writes their app in JavaScript. They pick some... JavaScript set of libraries to write their application on top of that kind of handles most of the cross-platform stuff for them and makes it so it looks kind of more like normal app development than the scripty stuff. And so it's, it's funny the number of layers of abstraction between that and the base metal is getting a little out of hand, but it's ridiculous not to do it that way. Uh, Given the difficulties that exist in supporting native apps on pretty much every platform except iOS, why not just write everything in HTML5 and be done with it? That's where we're headed. I mean, that's where my company's headed. We're just abandoning it. There's really no. Re the only reason for us to make native apps was to make money, was to sell the app. But it's just not worth the amount of money we make. Doesn't cover the development cost at this point. So screw it. We're just going HTML. Yeah, 10 years ago, uh, it was considered really unprofessional to have a web app. It was thought that it, the native widgets were much more versatile and much more professional looking. And the native widgets have completely stagnated in the intervening time, and HTML has gone forward by leaps and bounds. And nowadays, it's the exact opposite thing, that the HTML widgets are just considered much more professional looking and are way easier to deal with than the native stuff is. And you really should just do everything in HTML if you can get away with it. So the engineering me is very sympathetic to that, but that's like saying, why put your music in iTunes? Let's just host it on some random website and put a credit card form up. That way we don't have to give Apple a cut. Does that work? Anyone tried that one? That works great, doesn't it? That's a great way to sell music. Well, actually, it's because we, it makes we money. do that. And that's, sure. But, it, but you, it, is your music in iTunes, too? 
Sometimes. Oh, but there you go. It, it only mean, works for a major artist. Like, it works with Metallica. I wouldn't, like re- I wouldn't recommend a small band go and try and sell it directly because... Right, because the distribution of the app store. Right. So, again, like, I'm very sympathetic to this argument, but it's like people make a shitload of money off the app store. They get a lot of downloads, and you don't have to try very hard. It's just distribution, and there's lots of things that you give up to do so. Sure, there's, yeah, there's fragmentation on iOS as well. It's just less severe. There's definitely fragmentation issues. There's universal. You have to deal with iPad. There's, it's but, not as severe, but there are fragmentation issues regardless when you're dealing with native apps. It goes even beyond smartphones too, right? Because you have all these other devices that are kind of like, they're not actually dumb phone, but they don't have the form, they don't have all the functionalities <laughs> of a smartphone. So thinking of like Samsung devices where you code in brew or you are building something for a form function that's very specific. I think the cool thing about HTML5, or the idea anyway, is that won't matter. That you could build, they all have web browsers you can build, and then they can quickly adapt apps to Running all the different, different versions form of mobile Safari with slightly different implementations. Right, exactly. Well, it sounds, sounds like great. a business opportunity for HTML5 sure. App Store, right? But the people packaging the browsers are the people controlling the app stores. Yep. So again, I'm very sympathetic. Sorry, it's just like but they want to make money too. Sure, but if they get in run and they're the ones controlling what version of Safari gets ships on the phone, anyway, we can take this off. Yes. I'll give you a solution that exists somewhere in the middle. It's this product called PhoneGap. Have sure. you heard of it? And it's the idea of building an HTML5 application. And PhoneGap exists as a sort of wrapper so that then your app can actually exist within the App Store as its HTML5 app. You it's get not the speed and responsiveness of HTML5 with the business model economics of the App Store. It's the best There might be a problem yeah. with it. It's amazing. Right, it's not perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Smokes and mirrors, but it works. I have a... So, I have a question for uh, Brad. Not that one. <laughs> I'm interested in the in the business dynamics around um, supporting both unlimited access and uh, lossless audio, and in terms of, you know, what, what do you see as the adoption of both of those, and how it affects your, you know, cost structure and so on. Well, lossless was probably aside from just getting the rights in the first place when we started ten years ago. Lossless was the biggest fight I had to fight, and that was to get the bands and the labels to allow us to sell bit-perfect audio and not just crappy MP3s. Well, we also had the DRM issue back in the day. You know, Ten years ago, DRM was still rearing its ugly head, but now at least everyone got over that. But uh, it, you know, labels still, when I tell them today that 30% of our sales are people paying $5 more for lossless audio, their eyes pop out of their head. They don't believe that that's true, but... It's amazing. It doesn't matter who the band is, whether it's Metallica or some little bluegrass band or certainly a Grateful Dead-related band. A third of our customers will pay more for lossless. So it, you know, it's a huge part of our business model. And not only that, we're selling, if you saw the previous panel with Bob Weir, we're selling 24-bit audio at 48K, 96K, 192K. And we have fans paying you know, almost twice the price to get higher than CD quality audio. That's about 5% of our audience. So it's, it's enormously important to us. And what about the interactions like on the Fish app and the Stash code of unlimited access? Well, that's, more, it, that's you know, it's what you would call a cloud service, I suppose, or a locker service where you, we give you access to what you bought. So everything you bought from us for the last 10 years, every show you bought, whether you bought it as a download or a CD, you can stream it from the app. And that was a huge selling point. That's why people pay four bucks for the Fish app is that you get streaming access to everything you bought for the last 10 years. And, you know, our average customer has bought, you know, five or 10 shows. And not only that, but the app, 
it's about 27% of our app purchasers, these are people who paid four bucks for the app, are spending 25 bucks in the app. And you know, to a point we discussed earlier, that's actually going directly through our API and not going through iTunes. But the reason why we haven't upgraded those apps yet is because of this, you know, the gauntlet that Apple dropped that said, you know, any future versions, you're going to have to go through the iTunes API, which doesn't make sense for us because we have bands who are playing a different show every night. We can't preload that content into iTunes because it doesn't exist yet. The content's being created on a nightly basis. Like Wednesday, Metallica's playing at Yankee Stadium. We don't know what they're going to play. So we can't have that content preloaded in iTunes. So it's ridiculous for us, you know, it's impossible. That's the reason why we built our own payment API. It wasn't that we were trying to circumvent. I mean, it, it's a happy result that we were circumvented the 30%, but it's not practical in our case because we're creating new content on a nightly basis. It, it's really pathetic how the switch to digital has caused audio quality to go backwards, like a lot backwards. It should have made it go forwards. Uh, but to this day, people talk about toll quality audio as if this is some kind of gold standard. And cell phones don't even support toll quality. They're like way below toll quality. And toll quality is not a gold standard. It's a standard from like 100 years ago when technology is way behind. I would kind of like to be able to have a phone conversation with someone and like hear the background music that they have playing and not have it sound like weird noise. And the fact that this isn't done is just this like pathetic embarrassment for the technology industry as a whole, and I really wish people took enough pride in their work to fix this, just as a... We're working on well, it. It was, ba- it was bandwidth comment. <laughs> <laughs> Initially, it was bandwidth com- uh, you know, to conserve bandwidth, right? Yeah, that, that's, that's long gone. That just makes right. no sense anymore. I can tell you how it works off- offline. <laughs> yeah. One minute, probably one question. There is a question. Brad, um, wanted to start with you. Uh, you. You brought up a really good point, which is that there, there was a point in the app development cycle where, where everyone was throwing up like fart apps every day, and it was just getting out of control, and people had no no real reason to have an app would create an app. Well, my question now is, okay, so where are we where are we now? It seems like there's still a tremendous amount of hype around apps. Is there is there a bubble? Is there a point where consumers get sick of it because consumers are very fickle and move on to something else? I mean, it depends on what your business purpose is. You know, like we created apps to create a new revenue stream for our bands and to sell more music. And it's pretty straightforward. So, uh, you know, that's a goal that we still have, whether there's an app bubble or not. It's just we're not going to bother with making apps that go in an app store. We're just going to do them all HTML5. Okay, so, so you're not sure, but you t- you're just going to roll with whatever happens. But I, I guess I'll ask the no, rest of you guys. Like Brian addressed this earlier. Business. It's like when the web came out, like Yahoo existed to document every website, like right? It was like, wow, here's a website. Let's check this out. And it was a novelty. The fact you had a website was interesting, and so people created brochureware. And now we're definitely at the point where it's not novel to have a website. It's all about the utility. And so I'd argue with apps, there was a novelty period of, oh, wow, it's an app. This is so cool. I can see things on it. And it's becoming a lot more about your utility and solving specific problems. And so I don't think that part is a bubble. But, yeah, the novelty of just... Cool, I have some apps on my phone. I love my iPhone. Like, I do think that completely did wear off. Uh, so. Yeah, well, I think this internet thing is not a fad. Yeah. <laughs> Good. All right, that's it. Yeah.